Hi, I'm Tiki Barber, co-founder of Thusio. Thanks for listening to the Thusio Live and Unfiltered podcast. We're bringing our past events back to life for you to enjoy. Wade Boggs played the majority of his career with the Boston Red Sox, but won a World Series with the Yankees in 1996. He's considered one of the best hitters in the history of Major League Baseball with over 3,000 hits and five American League batting titles on his resume. He is a well-deserved first ballot baseball Hall of Famer in 2005. He joined Thuzio Live and Unfiltered in March of 2019 to discuss what it was like to play for two of the most legendary ball clubs in baseball. His experience playing with a young Derek Jeter to make a World Series run in 1996 and riding that NYPD horse after their victory. Plus, plenty of other MLB memories. Enjoy the interview. He really need no introduction because you're nationally famous, maybe world famous, uh, given your TV appearances as of late. But you are a legend in so many ways. Obviously, up in Boston with the Red Sox, here with the Yankees because you brought a title or helped bring them a title after 18 years of drought since 1978. Uh, you went to the Tampa Bay Rays. You hit the f Devil Rays at the time. You hit the first home run, then your 3,000th hit was a home run. But you just told me, with all those accomplishments, the one thing you want to do is win a high school baseball championship as a coach? Come on, Wade. <laughs> it, Hold on, Tiki. Let me, let me explain myself a little bit. In 2001, 2001, I was hitting instructor for Tampa Bay, and my son was going into high school. He was becoming a freshman and going to Wharton High School. And I said, you know what? I don't want anybody else to coach my son. I, I want to do it myself. And so I just walked away from professional baseball. I've been at Wharton High School for 19 years now, coaching high school baseball. And thank you. Yeah, it, it's very gratifying. It's very gratifying because helping these young kids uh, learn the game, play the game the right way, and helping their parents with a little bit of college education, uh, money going a little bit this way, that's, that's the reward that we get. We've been one win away three times from the state uh, playoffs. I've got a Hall of Fame ring and a World Series ring, but I would love a state high school baseball championship ring. That's, that's my goal now. And uh, hopefully, we've got a uh, super team right now, and hopefully in the next couple of years, we can uh, achieve that accomplishment. What's the hardest thing about coaching high school kids? Do they think they know all the answers? Probably the, har the hardest thing is, is I, I always thought, I've had that, that question before. Which is harder, teaching big league hitters how to hit or teaching high school players how to play the game? And I would say teaching big league players how to hit because it's like leading a horse to water and they don't want to drink. <laughs> That's, that's the biggest thing. But the, the high school, the, the thing that I enjoy so much about high school is they're, they're molds of clay. And I just mold them any way I want to. I teach them the right way. And God forbid you don't hustle because you will get chewed out. I learned the game from Pete Rose. And if you don't hustle, you will get chewed out. You play the game the right way. You play it hard and leave everything on the field. Now, there's no better person 
to teach high school players how to hit than you. Obviously, you're a five-time batting champion. You're one of four people in history to do it. Actually, five in history to do it four years in a row. And there's some big names. Ty Cobb, Rogers Hornsby, Rod Carew, and your pal, Tony Gwynn, uh, led uh, the batting title, won the batting title four years in a row. Is batting a lost art in today's Major League Baseball? Whoa, Tiki's been doing his homework with the sabermetrics. Here we go. We're going to talk a little launch angle for you. We're going to talk a little launch angle. The one thing that disturbs me about hitting nowadays is they teach this launch angle thing. When players in a month have more strikeouts than hits collectively, there's a problem in Major League Baseball. It's, it's a wonderful solution for pitchers because they finally figured out how they can pitch up in the zone because the, the major league hitters can't get to a ball letter high. So they're going to swing at it. Boy, you watch spring training games. Those eyes light up when that ball's up in the, up in the zone. They swing and miss. And if they do make contact, they're going to pop it up. What a, what, a great, what a great concept for a pitcher. Hey, all I have to do is just throw the ball up here, hit it. Try to. If they throw it down in the zone, <laughs> they, get, they get their lunch. Uh, absolutely. What made it different for you all? Why were you guys, your era, why, was it, why were you better hitters than batters now? I, I don't think we were better hitters. I, 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 I'm kind of partial to my era. I mean, when you go back and, and look at the era of baseball that I was in with the, with the George Bretts, Rod Carews, Tom Seavers, Nolan Ryans, and... and Robin Younce and Paul Molitors and, and the, the gentleman that I've been put in the Hall of Fame with. It's, it's pretty spectacular, that era. I, I think the biggest thing is, is hitting coaches revolutionized how to make contact and work counts. That was, that was the biggest thing, is the, the big conversations with Ted Williams in spring training and, and during the season when I would talk with Ted is... Don't go up looking, hunting to swing at the first pitch. Because the more pitches you see, the more chances a pitcher's going to make a mistake. Consequently, I, I would run the count to 3-2, foul off 3 or 4, and hopefully he makes a mistake. But you wear down the pitcher. The greatest thing that pitchers love, you go up there, swing at the first pitch, ground out. Boom. Okay, man, that's great. Okay, 3-4-5 pitch inning. Terrific. Well, now, when I came over to New York in 93, Rick Down was the hitting coach. God rest his soul, he just passed away. Rick Down was the hitting coach. And we sat down with a philosophy. This philosophy wasn't uh, with, with New York. We tried to get to 90 pitches in five innings to wear down the starting pitcher. And I'll tell you a little quick story about how to get to 90 pitches within five innings. Don Mattingly, who I played with, and was the first person to uh, congratulate me on my gold glove in 94. I, I love Donnie to death. Cap, you're, you're one of the best, man. I, I, I love you. The scenario, he, he, would, he would say, Bogsy, how do you walk so much? And I would say, very simple. I take 2-0. and o. And he looked at me like I had three heads. What? And I said, very simple. You take 2-0 and o because 2-1? and one, you're going to get the same pitch. Basically, you're going to get the same pitch two and one. You add, if nine guys in the lineup take two and oh, 
you add pitches to the pitch count. And coincidentally, that was our philosophy. And we would wear bullpens out. If we got the starter out there after nine innings, we'd wear a bullpen out. You, since you brought this up, making the transition from Boston to New York, I'll go there. What ultimately came that? Was it money? Was it want? Did they want you more? Why did you leave Boston? I didn't leave. <laughs> well, why did they kick you out of Boston? I didn't leave. I, I, well, if you didn't leave, why did you choose the They UK? opened the door and said, don't let it hit you where the sun don't shine. Tell so, us about that relationship then. And I, I, I said this story last night, and, and I'll, I'll share it with, with my Yankee fans. In, 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 19, in 1991, at the end of 1991, Mrs. Yockey, the, the owner of uh, the Red Sox at that time, came to me in the parking lot after the last game in 1991, and she says, Wade, I want you to follow in the same footsteps as Ted Williams and Carl Yastrzemski. Would seven years for $37 million do the do the job? And I says, Mrs. Yockey, do you have a napkin? I will sign it right now. On January 3rd, 1992, my world came to a standstill. Mrs. Yockey slipped in a bathtub and died. My world came to a standstill. I went to spring training. They pulled the offer off the table. There was no more offer of seven years, 37 million, or I negotiated all the way through spring training in 92. Couldn't come to an agreement. Had one of the worst years I'd ever had. Next thing you know, I'm a free agent. And Mr. Steinbrenner calls. At that time, he was suspended. So I can tell this story because he's passed away. God, God love you, Mr. Steinbrenner. I, I love you to death, but I got to tell the story. So <laughs> we're, we're, we're at the, uh, the Causeway Inn the hotel that Mr. Steinbrenner owned. And at that time, Joe Malloy was representing Mr. Steinbrenner because he was suspended because of uh, Dave Winfield. And, and having the Secret Service follow Dave Winfield around, whatever, whatever that scenario was. So my agent, Alan Nero, and, and myself and, and Joe Malloy were sitting at the, having breakfast. And I'm looking around, and, and there's a couple other people in there, and there's a, uh, I can't see who's behind this newspaper. So we're talking, we're talking, and Joe Malloy goes, wait, with three years at 11 million, uh, get you to New York? And I said, well, let me think about it. Uh, I have to go outside and call my wife, and, and uh, hold on, I'll get back with you. So I run outside, get on the phone, and call my wife and say, we're going to New York. We're going to New York, absolutely. So I come back in and ho-hum around, and I said, I, I, I think, I, I think that'll, that'll do it. And all of a sudden, the paper comes down, and I get this big wink. It's Mr. Steinbrenner. He's listening to the whole conversation, and basically that's how I got to New York, by the grace of God. Well, obviously, it's in the same division as the Boston Red Sox. Rut row, Raggy. Rut row is right. You had to go back to Boston to and back. play the Boston Red Sox. You went four for four <laughs> in your return to Fenway Park. What was that emotion like for well, you? Well, you, you, you got to do it like Hollywood. I mean, <laughs> the, the thing about it was is, is leading up to that moment and going back to Boston with so many memories and knowing what's going on.
that I had so many things running through my head and, and took my family back to Boston and, and for this moment. And actually, when I got to the ballpark on the first day, Buck Showalter calls me in the office and goes, Boxy, I'm not going to play you today. And I said, oh, yes, you are. <laughs> I said, there is no way that I am not playing today. He goes, Boggs is too emotional. You had the press conference, everything, everything. I, I, I said, Buck, believe me, I'm fine. And then after the game, Buck called me back in the office and goes, you weren't kidding, were you? And I said, no, I, I, I'm fine. I, I needed that release to, to, to do that. But when I, when I came up for my first at bat, there were a lot of... The video showed a few people clapping. That was a lot of There were 37 booing, 37,000 people booing. Then after the first hit, it was like 35, and then it went to 31, and then after the fourth hit is when I got the ovation. But, but it was uh, very special, very, very needed that, that to go back and, and get that, uh, sort of, sort of get that, that monkey off your back to where, okay, now I'm back to where, where I, was very comfortable. Now you you played for both, obviously the Yankees and the and the Red Sox. What was the big difference then between those two organizations? Probably the biggest thing is is when I when I left Boston, they hadn't won a, a world championship since 1918, and going over to New York, the last time that New York had won was 1978. So, Yankee. The, the biggest thing going to New York was every time Bob Shepard would introduce me walking up to the plate, people would still think I'm in a Red Sox uniform. For the first month of the season, they would boo. So then I f felt comfortable and started hitting the way that I normally do, and they, and they go, for the Yankees. Bob Shepard had to say, for the Yankees, now batting Wade Boggs. So he would have to interject for the Yankees and, and not for the Red Sox. But it was, uh, like I said, it was, it was God's gift for me to come to New York for five years. Had a wonderful time. And basically we won every year that I was here. And we had some, some difficult moments in 95. Uh, Donnie's last year, Seattle was, was crazy. And Donnie and I were sitting in the training room in Seattle after the last game, and he said, Bogsy, I'm retiring. And I said, Cap, you can't retire. I said, you just had one of the greatest playoffs. And that was the first time Donnie had ever been to the playoffs. And then the next year, we eventually wind up winning the World Series in 96. But uh, just super teams, super guys. We all got along, and it wasn't that Bronx Zoo stuff that everybody that – we, we were a different breed. We had like personalities, and, and everybody got along. And, and it, it really made for a uh, – thank God the Mets were on the back page all the time. <laughs> well, it made for a magical season in 1996. You talk about that World Series uh, championship. Now, it started out ugly against the Atlanta Braves. You guys, what, 16-1 to in first two games? Uh, you were blown out. And obviously, that turn, you win four in a row – uh, you win the World Series, and I, I mean, you've probably answered this question a million times, but what in the hell inspired you to jump on the back 
of this horse. Obviously, that's an epic Woo! series. Boy, you talk about goosebumps. <laughs> Man, I still get goosebumps from that. Why did you do that? Did you know that well, guy? <laughs> well, let's get back to the first question about uh, the 16 to 1 debacle and all of that good stuff. Going into the, we had a few days off because we had uh, clinched early. And we were in Yankee Stadium, open up against the Atlanta Braves for the World Series. What a, what, a, what a great time. I'm back to my second World Series and just enjoying life. Well, the next thing you know, we're down 2-0. And Mr. Steinbrenner's going nuts. He's absolutely, he doesn't even want to go to Atlanta and everything like that. So I was on the back of the plane going to Atlanta, and I said, you know what? I've been in this position before. We came back to Boston when we played the Mets in 86. We were up 2-0. And the Mets wound up, uh, well, we know what the hell happened there. But, <laughs> but I told everybody in the back, I said, hey, I said, we may be down 0-2. We need to go into Atlanta like Grant took Richmond and just walk away with this thing because they don't want to go back to New York. I can guarantee that. They do not want to, because we didn't want to go back in 86 to New York. And I guarantee that those four Hall of Famers, Smoltz, Glavin, Maddox, and Chipper Jones, and all of them, didn't want to go back to New York. I said, if we get them back in New York, it's over. I'm not Nostradamus or anything like that, but it, it came true. It came true. They did not want to go back. And when Joe Girardi hit that triple, I'm telling you, that's the loudest venue I've ever heard in my sports career. It's even louder than the Metrodome. And that's supposed to be a 747 taking off. And it was rumbling and stumbling. And the, and the cups were falling off the Gatorade containers and everything. And I said, this place may come down. That's how crazy it was. And then, boom, the last out. And we dogpile on the mound. And I'm crying like a little baby, uh, naturally. I'm crying like a little baby. And we all decide, hey, let's take a victory lap. Well, one thing you have to understand about New York is you New Yorkers have a habit of charging the field. And I just had visions of, of 78 going ballistic and everybody on the field and all that. God bless you people because you stayed in your seats and applauded. So we took a victory lap. Well, the next thing I know, I'm down the left field line on a horse. Until this day, I have no idea how I got on that horse. I've never gone back and looked at the video. Coincidentally, coincidentally, the, 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 the policeman got suspended for 10 days. So he got suspended for 10 days. And... Oh, that's fine. Don't feel sorry for him. He did card shows for 10 days with a horse, with Bo. So he did card shows. He made up his money. Don't worry about it. And he was doing card shows, and Bo would stamp the picture with his hoof and everything like that. So he made out okay. Yeah, obviously he did. What was, it, what was that team like? Because it was a young Jeter. He was a rookie. Bernie was on that team. And there were the, the icons that we think about for Yankees, Yankees lore, the, the five-run championship uh, that they went on. That was the beginning of it. What, what were they all like as youngins coming in to, this, to the club? Derek Jeter, at, at that time, that was his rookie year in 96. He, he was a, 
he was a seasoned professional as a baby. And he, he was very methodical and knew how to get the job done. Bernie was young. Uh, we had Joe Girardi and, and uh, Jorge Posada and uh, Cecil Fielder and Tino Martinez at first and, and Rock Raines, the Hall of Famer, Tim Raines was there and Paul O'Neill and, and Coney and, and Pettit. The, th the thing about it is, is when we had the 20th reunion, you would have thought that we just got done playing yesterday. We had the 20th reunion and we're still ragging on each other and joking and, and, and I mean, Reigns is yelling at O'Neill and Cecil's just yelling at Reigns and everybody's, it was, it was so special. It was one of those teams that you sit back and reflect on and, and say, wow, that was, that was something. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story in 96 when we went to the West Coast. We were one in 13 on the West Coast, when, on, the, on the West Coast trip. And Mr. Steinbrenner came back in and had a team meeting when we got back. The thing about it is, is we picked up a game on that trip because Toronto went 0 and 14. They were 0 and 14. We were 1 and, 4, 1 and 13. We picked up a game. So it wasn't as bad as Mr. Steinbrenner thought, but he came in. He, Screamed at everybody, yelled at everybody, and said, there's no chance that this team can ever win a ring. And we went, what did he just say? He said, win a wing. And I went, did he say win a ring? He said, no, he said, win a wing. But that lightened up the moment. That lightened up the moment when he said that, because we all looked at each other and said, I can't believe he said that, because he's, he's very very methodical in what he says, and, he's, and it's rehearsed. But he aired everybody out. He didn't leave anybody unscathed. And we went on to win, I think, 21 out of the next 24. We just went on a tear and wound up winning the division and going through the playoffs. That was all good for your Yankees lore, but it didn't do any favors for your Red Sox lore. Why did it take them so long to retire your number? Ted Williams retired in 1961, and Ted Williams finally had his number retired in 1983. So that took quite a while for Ted Williams to get his number. I left the Red Sox in 1992 and had my number retired in 2016, the same amount of years Ted Williams had. There was a gentleman in Boston who didn't like that. He's no longer there, thank goodness. So they decided to retire my number with, with uh, the help of Sam Kennedy and, and John Henry. And, but uh, it, it's a special honor to, uh, to know the fact that, that Lou Gorman doesn't have to sit there. He was a formal, former general manager for the Red Sox saying that, uh, why'd you give out Wade Boggs' number 26? He says, well, he was just passing through. All right, okay. So they put you in the Hall of Fame in 2004. You went to the... 2005. 2004, Red Sox. Oh, and the Red Sox. 2005, oh, okay, I'm sorry. you go into the Major League Baseball right. Hall of Fame. They retire your number in 2016. But you won a championship with the Yankees. Who do you identify more with? I knew I should have called him Rondi. <laughs> uh, you know what? I, I, 
I have just as much love for Boston as I do New York. I really do. I, I, I can't separate the two. Everybody says, who do you root for? I said, whoever's behind. I said, basically, that's how I do. Because I, I, I played at two of the greatest markets, two of the greatest venues, two of the greatest fan bases that you could ever imagine. And the historical facts of Boston and New York, I was very blessed to be a part of all of that. And adding a little bit of, of I was only here five years. I, I would have loved to stay here longer, but Mr. Steinbrenner, I think, uh, made a, a, a concession with Mr. Namoli when Mr. Namoli had the uh, Tampa Bay Devil Rays, that he was gonna let me go and not renew my option, that I could be on the ground floor for Mr. Namoli to start the franchise going back home to play in front of uh, family and friends. But I, I'm, I'm telling you, I spent 11 years in Boston, but the five years that I spent in New York were, were, were so blessed. I was so blessed to come to New York, and I want to thank the New York fans for being so gracious. Well said. You're from Tampa. That's what Wade is referring to. And you spent uh, a couple of years down in Tampa, including hitting their first home run in franchise history and your 3,000th hit was a home run as a Tampa Bay Ray. How special was that couple of years with the Devil Rays? Well, growing up in Tampa, I played Little League in Tampa, and I moved to Tampa in 69 when I was 11. And all through the years, Tampa always tried to get a, a baseball franchise. And with that franchise came the heartaches and the disappointments of, of oh, my gosh, we, we, we came close. We didn't get it. Well, now I'm playing for New York, and... Uh-oh, Tampa Bay's got a franchise, and now it's called the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. And they started in 95 and started the minor leagues and everything like that. 90, uh, 98 was the inaugural season for Tampa Bay, and I got to go home and play uh, where, where I grew up. So driving across that bridge, uh, Howard Franklin, every day to go to Tropicana Field, Opening night was unbelievable. We had 49,000 opening night, and Ted Williams was there, and, and, and I, th I think we had four Hall of Famers, Monty Irvin and, and Ted Williams, Stan Musial. They were throwing out the first pitch. And it was, the electricity was, was bar none. Not like when the Buccaneers started at <laughs> Owen 37 or whatever they started, but... but uh, Oh, and 27. Thank you. Thank you. But, but that night was so electric, and, and I'm sure that the Vegas odds did not have me as hitting the first Devil Ray home run. But Justin Thompson, Justin Thompson threw me a 2-1 breaking ball and, and wound up in the seats. And, but uh, 3,000, getting, getting to that magic moment and, and seeing that light at the end of the tunnel, you play all your career to get to this moment and driving across and, and needing three hits that night on uh, August 7th was uh, so special because my son at that time was the bat boy. He was 11 years old and he was the bat boy. So he got to rub up the balls and, and I let him pick out the bats that I was using for the game. And TV crew came and said, hey, when your dad hits a single, pick up first base and hand it to him. Well, he was at home plate when I came back around. He was trying to figure out how to dig up home plate. He couldn't figure this out. He was, he was like bewildered about how am I going to hand my dad this home plate. 
But it was so special because so many people, Friday night I was over three with a walk, and, and, and I had Saturday going across the bridge, and I asked my son, I said, uh, what do you think tonight, buddy? He says, uh, you got it tonight, Dad. I said, I got three hits. I'm facing Charlie Nagy. I don't know, Charlie Nagy, I don't, I don't hit too good off of him. 221 lifetime. He goes, no, tonight's the night. And I went, ooh, okay, all right, I'll take your word for it. So I got the first hit, and I got the second hit, and I'm at 29.99, and Jim Tomey's at first base. He goes, man, you live for this moment, don't you? And I said, dude, I'm one away. I said, that light at the end of the tunnel is like the sun right now. So I come up for the last at bat, and, and, and Larry Rothschild was our manager at the time, and they bring in Chris Haney, left-handed pitcher. He says, Boggsy, I'm going to pinch hit for you. And I went, you may not get out of this place alive if you pinch hit for me. I said, no. We, and my son thought he was serious. And he goes, Dad, is he serious? I said, no, he's just teasing. So I walk up to the plate and got a 2-2 breaking ball that uh, I said, well, I'm not getting that ball back. But uh, a gracious gentleman by the name of Mike Hogan caught the ball and uh, brought it back to the clubhouse and said, It'll be better in your trophy case than it will be mine. And uh, he gave the ball back. So it was uh, the first guy to ever do it. Derek Jeter and Alex Rodriguez have done it since. But there's only one Neil Armstrong. You can only land on the moon once. <laughs> okay, you're also legendary for your consumption of uh, hops and beers, Miller Lights. I thought we were going to have to get to that point. Of course. I mean... You're in a TV show talking about it. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. A classic. How many, how many have seen that episode? What's the actual number? In a day and on the cross-country flight. I've heard 64 for the cross-country flight and 107 in a day, which is impossible, but you'll tell me, you'll tell me otherwise. I have the hollow leg, so don't worry about it. So. <laughs> So uh, this is nothing, I, I, I said it last night, this is nothing to try at home. And, and, and I tell people that, that, yeah, that try to do the Wade Boggs challenge and all of this. And, and I, I specifically say, please do not try to do this. This is, is, is very idiotic, very stupid. Uh, I did it when I was a lot younger. Um, we're, on a, we're on a cross country flight, Boston to LA. And we would play blackjack on the plane. So started going along, going along, going along. And I'm hammering out, hammering out, hammering out. And Tim Nearing and uh, a couple of the guys at the table sitting there going, Boxy, I just, I just recorded 41 beers. And we're like over Nebraska or something like this. And he says, I just recorded 41 beers. I said, I said really? I said, oh, good. I said, we got half the flight left. So, so we keep going and I'm winning. So when I'm winning, I'm drinking. So here we go, and come to find out, Naring at the end of the flight goes, Box, you realize you had 73 beers? And I went, wow, really? I said, oh, okay, all right. So then we got back, dropped off the bags at the hotel and everything, and went out. So consequently, wound up with a, <clears throat> another case and a half, but other than that, Wound up to like 104, 107, somewhere in there. 
So then I get to the ballpark the next day, and we're facing Mark Langston, who's a left-handed pitcher for California. He's an extremely tough lefty. And my hitting coach at the time was Walt Riniak. And I come in, and he's waiting for me. So I'm at the ballpark, 1230, come in and start taking off my jewelry and put in my valuable bag to put in, and he's following me around. So I get in the training room, and he starts airing me out. You got no chance today. And I went, what do you mean, Walt? He says, Langston's going to stick it up your rear end. I said, mm, I heard what you did last night. And I went, Walt, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Everything's fine. So the first time up, I doubled to left center. And a superstition that I had with Walt is I have to give him my right-handed glove. So he comes out reluctantly to give me the glove and doesn't even look at me. So he gets it. Next time up, I walk. Next time up, I line drive. Left center, runs it down. Next time up, double. Next time up, walk. I get to first base. Walt Rennie looks at me and goes, you know what? You're the best I've ever seen. And I went, that's how I roll. The legendary Wade Boggs. Thanks for listening to the Thuzio Live and Unfiltered podcast with our guest, Wade Boggs. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like information on how you can attend our live events or book our new virtual ones, visit www.thuzio.com. That's T-H-U-Z-I-O dot com. And be sure to follow us on social media at Thuzio.